Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew 5. And these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. And if you don't have a Bible, get their attention. They will get one to you. It is marked at Matthew chapter 5. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everybody to own a copy of God's Word. A study last year concluded that, on average, every two out of three people in America are not happy with their lives. An article on that study said, the U.S. economy may be recovering, but Americans aren't getting any happier. Only one in three Americans say they're very happy. But many people pontificate on what happiness is. One said, the most important thing is to enjoy your life, to be happy. It's all that matters. That was Audrey Hepburn. So, every self-centered person in the world would certainly agree with that. All that matters is that I'm happy. Or another said this, happiness is not something ready-made. It comes from your own actions. That's from the Dalai Lama. Well... Hello, Dolly. Might it matter that what it is those actions are? That is, if I see something and I want it and I steal it and don't get caught, I'm happy. The happiness of the thief has indeed come from his own actions. Or another said, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. That was Mahatma Gandhi. So I think I want to murder you. I told you I'm going to murder you, and I actually murder you. They're all in harmony. But in the words of that great theologian, Sheryl Crow, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. After all of this, people are still unhappy. Surely, Pharrell Williams can straighten us out. He has a song on happiness that remained number one longer than any other song this year. Here's how it begins. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. Sunshine, she's here, you can take away. I'm a hot air balloon, I could go to space. With the air, like I don't care, baby, by the way. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof, because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth, because I'm happy. Clap along if you know what happiness is to you, because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like that's what you want to do. Any questions? (laughs) With all of that, now a word from our Creator. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3. Blessed. Or, as we'll see, could be translated happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's bow before the Lord. Father, we again need you. And we need your aid as we look at your word. We need your aid to understand it. We need your aid to apply it. Clear our minds. Open our hearts. We pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Jesus begins this most famous and profound of sermons, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, as we continue our series titled from the Sermon on the Mount, Transformed Lives. 
He begins this sermon with eight blessings from verses 3 through 10. And this section of the Sermon on the Mount, many of you know, is known as the Beatitudes. That word comes from a Latin word, beatus, which means blessed. And in those verses, verses 3 through 10, there are eight blessings described by the Lord. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, and then blessed are those who mourn, and blessed are the meek, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and so on. How radically different is this view of the blessed life from that of the world? Several years ago, I heard Gene Simmons, leader of the rock band KISS, interviewed on the Jim Rome radio show. Now, the Jim Rome show is about sports, so why Gene Simmons was on it, I have no idea. But Simmons said this, I do what I want, when I want, where I want. I don't answer to anyone. To which Rome responded, Gene, you're what we all want to be. How do you get to that place where you call all the shots? And that's what all of those quotes that I gave you a bit earlier have in common. For all of them, happiness is self-referential. Happiness starts and ends with you. Enjoy your own life. It comes from your own actions. It's what you think and what you say and what you do. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. It's about what happiness is to you. But this morning, we'll begin to see God's view of the good life the blessed life. And we've supplied for you an outline inserted in your program. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take a look at that. We say, first of all, in that outline, that the good life is a satisfied life. The good life is a satisfied life. I found the comments of the late scholar Dwight Pentecost helpful in explaining this. He says, the Bible presents God himself as the blessed one. He is worthy to receive blessing because of his absolute unalterable holiness. God alone is worthy to be called blessed because of who he is in himself. But God can bestow blessing upon people. The Greek word that's translated blessed here, makarios, is used frequently in the New Testament to describe the condition of those whom God blesses. For example, after Jesus began to demonstrate what true love is. He said to his first followers on the night before he died in John 13, Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. The King James translates that this way. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Jesus is saying that the happiness of his followers would depend not only on knowing the truth, but also believing and obeying it. The same word is used when Jesus spoke to Doubting Thomas after Jesus' resurrection. And you remember Jesus proved that he was alive by allowing Thomas to touch his wounds from the crucifixion just a few days earlier. This is what John 20 says Jesus said to Thomas. Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The one who believes is the truly happy man or woman. In another passage, it refers to, this word does, the disposition of God himself when it speaks of, in 1 Timothy 1, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. 
which he entrusted to me. Now this phrase, the blessed God, speaks to the contentment that belongs to God because of who God is. God is complete in himself. Did you know, friends, that God did not create because he was lonely or because he he needed his creatures? There's no discontent or unhappiness in God. And because he is this kind of God, he can give what he has to those who believe in him. Another passage that uses this word is found in Titus chapter 2, where it's speaking of the second coming of the Lord, and it says this, We wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's saying the hope of the Lord's return brings happiness or blessedness to the believer. Now, friends, it should be clear, and if it's not, I want to make clear, that Jesus is using blessed or happy in the Sermon on the Mount quite differently than the popular usage. In fact, generally, I refrain from using happiness to describe the Christian life, not because it's untrue that the Christian life is happy, but because the word has been co-opted by the culture to mean what happens. That is, in the way most people use happy and happiness, it's tied to their circumstances. It has to do with what happens to them. And so if what happens is good, I'm happy. But if my circumstances are bad, I'm not happy. But in verse 10 of these Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, this blessedness, this happiness that Jesus speaks of is even for, notice verse 10, for the persecuted. And so clearly what Jesus is promising is something that's independent of circumstances. It's an internal peace, contentment, satisfaction, that remains even when the external circumstances are difficult. When Jesus speaks of happiness, blessedness in this sermon, he relates it to holiness. In the New Testament, happiness and blessedness are identified with purity of character. The Bible sees sin as the source of misery and holiness as the source of peace and satisfaction and contentment. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, here's what he's doing. He's giving the first characteristic of holiness that produces happiness. Dwight Pentecost says this, The Lord showed what must characterize a man or woman who says he is holy, and the blessing that comes from God upon the one who has received his gift of righteousness by faith in Christ. How significant that the very characteristic the world despises, discounts, and calls a sign of weakness, the Lord exalted. The world can never provide the foundation for a happy life, for the world cannot produce holiness. And hear this, he says, there is no happiness apart from holiness. The good life is a satisfied life, a content life. But that's all based upon the holiness that we will see in the next few weeks that Jesus describes in these Beatitudes. It's a satisfied life, but here's the second thing I have in your outline. The good life is also an accepted life. The good life is a satisfied life and an accepted life. Verse 3, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, to illustrate the poor, I want to show you another passage where Jesus used the same word translated poor. Jesus told the story of a beggar named Lazarus. 
who was covered with sores and longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. If you guys will advance the slide, do you have that? A beggar named Lazarus was covered with sores and longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, the word translated beggar in that passage is the same word as poor in our passage. The beggar Lazarus was destitute, poverty-stricken, without any resources of his own. And so one commentator says the words poor and beggar come from a root word that means to cover and to cringe. It was so humiliating for a man to confess that he had nothing and was dependent on someone else that the very act of begging demeaned him. And so the beggar would cover his face and crouch or cower as he held out his hand for a gift. He was ashamed to let the giver know his identity. And so you could translate this first of the Beatitudes in verse 3 of Matthew 5 as blessed are the beggars in spirit. Or blessed are the spiritual paupers. Or blessed are the spiritually destitute. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. And Jesus says these are the people who go to heaven. Those who recognize that they are spiritually impoverished are the ones who are given spiritual riches. Now, I say these are the people who go to heaven. How do I know that? Well, the last part of verse 3 says, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, all of the eight Beatitudes are characteristics of those who are going to heaven. And that's why they begin and end the same way. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then the eighth one, the final one, is in verse 10. Now you'll see that verse 11 begins with the word blessed as well, but that's not a separate blessing. It's a continuation of the one in verse 10. So the eight end in verse 10 the same way as the first one in verse 3. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Again, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This teaching of Jesus, that those whom God accepts are those who see themselves as unacceptable, is not a new teaching. In fact, it was taught in many places in the first part of your Bible, what we call the Old Testament. The book of Psalms speaks of it in several places. For example, Psalm 51, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. And again in Psalm 34, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and save those, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Since those God accepts have nothing to contribute to their well-being. That's why I say in your outline, this acceptance comes at no cost. It's a life that is accepted at no cost. Now, although this teaching that God saves the crushed in spirit was not new to the Bible... It was a teaching that was completely opposite from how the people had been taught by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Jesus frequently had to challenge the spiritual pride of the religious leaders. And so he did so, for example, in the parable that he gave of the great Samaritan, the good Samaritan, you'll remember. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, looked down on Samaritans as inferior people. But in Jesus' story, he exalted a merciful and kind Samaritan who helped a man who had been beaten and robbed and left for dead. And on another occasion, the Bible says this. To some who were confident of their own righteousness 
and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, that is an extremely religious guy, and the other a tax collector, that is a social outcast. And Jesus goes on, the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. One commentator says this about the spiritual pride of this religious man. This man's understanding of sin and virtue is completely external. It's completely focused on behavior and the violation of or keeping of rules. It's not looking inside. It's not looking at character. Sin is perceived by this man as completely in terms of discrete individual actions that can be counted. And so he says, I don't rob, I don't commit adultery, I don't cheat. I give my money away, I fast, I do my religious observances. And Jesus says this man prayed, quote, about himself. Notice the man does not say, God, I thank you that I'm getting more patient, or that I'm becoming a gentler person, or that I'm able to love those I used to not be able to love. I'm able to keep my joy and my peace even when things go wrong. He's not talking about those things. He, this man, is completely externally focused. His understanding of sin and virtue is completely oriented to external behavior, keeping and breaking rules. And his religion enables him to compare himself favorably then to other people. They don't do what I do. And so he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men, implying he's so much better. Jesus said, this man was one who looked down on everybody else. He thinks he's better than everybody else because he's not a robber, an evildoer, or an adulterer. And indeed, those are, as we all know, in the Bible. He's not stealing or doing evil or committing adultery. And he says, though, I tithe. That is, I give. That's also in the Bible. But then he says, I fast twice a week. And there's nothing in the Bible about fasting twice a week. This man has created his own rules to show how religious he is. Now contrast that, as Jesus does, with the tax collector, the social outcast. Because Jesus goes on to say, But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now I want you to notice something interesting in what this despised tax collector says. At the end of this verse, it says, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. But in Greek, the original language of your New Testament, it actually says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. The sinner. You see, friends, if you think of sin only externally and only comparatively, like the Pharisee, the religious guy did, then there's always someone who's committed more sins than you. You're only ever a sinner. You're never the sinner. This man, this tax collector, is thinking of sin in absolute terms. What he's saying is, all I know is that I'm lost and where everybody else is doesn't matter. And the conclusion Jesus gives us in that story, he says this, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, the religious guy, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will will be exalted. That is why the great Apostle Paul said, 
In Philippians chapter 3, we put no confidence in the flesh. We have no confidence in ourselves and in our own accomplishments, but rather in God. Dear friends, hear this. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. That's why we can say with the hymn writer, Nothing in my hand I bring, only to thy cross I claim. The good life is an accepted life. It's a life that's accepted at no cost to us because it must be at no cost to us because we have nothing to give. But then I also say in your outline, it is accepted at actually infinite cost. It's accepted at no cost, but then it is accepted at infinite cost. That is, eternal life is a free gift to us, but it comes at great cost to God. Jesus died for us, doing what we could not do for ourselves. He died in our place, paying the penalty of our sin. His payment for sin was acceptable because his life was sinless. And friends, to seek to gain heaven by your goodness is to say to God that Jesus' death was unnecessary. To seek to gain heaven by your own goodness, by your own merits, by your own doing, is to say to God, Christ died for nothing. The good life is a satisfied life. It's an accepted life. And then thirdly, the good life is an affected life, an affected life. That is, the fact that we are poor in spirit and that our gracious God declares us to be righteous because of Jesus' life and death, that should have a profound effect on how we see ourselves, friends, and on how we live. That is, it should affect us. If we see ourselves as spiritually destitute and spiritually bankrupt, And God, as in his grace, giving us the riches of Christ at Christ's expense. Then that should have a profound effect on us. How is it affected? I say in your outline, it's affected by a couple of things. It's affected by, first of all, future hope. By future hope. We're going to see this more fully when we get to verse 10 in a few weeks. But for now... The fact that verse 3, in this first of the blessings that Jesus gives, says that ours will be the kingdom of heaven, that should affect how we live now. The fact that we have the confident expectation of life with our Lord should affect the way we pursue our lives now. You know that's what hope is in Scripture. Hope is not a wish in Scripture. It's a confident expectation based upon the promises of God. And so we have the hope, the blessed hope of the Lord's appearing. We have the hope of the kingdom of heaven being ours. This is a confident expectation, and hope or lack of it affects the way we behave. According to a study from the University of Texas, teens who expect to die young are more likely to commit crimes. The study released this spring asked more than 1,300 serious juvenile offenders, one question. How long do you think you'll live? Their answers ranged from 16 to 200. 
Researchers then checked in periodically with them over a period of seven years and asked about subsequent criminal activity. The youths who went on to offend most were the ones with a short-term mentality. Notably, though, there also was a group of offenders, those who could think long-term, who successfully reformed. One young man who had been arrested for distribution of marijuana, not just possession, distribution, that's a felony, said this, I basically had no visible hope. I thought to myself, this is the lifestyle that everybody before me shows. This is the lifestyle that everyone around me is doing, and this is the lifestyle I have to choose. You see that this young man and many of those young men with this short-term mentality, I will only live a relatively short time, they basically had no hope, and it affected the way they behaved. So one has said this, man can live about 40 days without food, about three days without water, about eight minutes without air, but for only one second without hope. But Christians have hope. Christians have the confident expectation of life with God, and that should affect the way we live now. So this good life that is an affected life is affected by our future hope, but I say in your outline as well, it's affected by present security. It's affected by future hope, and it's affected by present security. That is, since I, since we, if we have come to Christ in faith, believing who he is and what he has done, since we have already been promised eternal life, verse 3, theirs is the kingdom of heaven, that should profoundly impact my thinking and my behavior. Pastor Tim Keller is the pastor, some of you know, of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. He has a very helpful chart that contrasts the thinking of the strictly religious person with the person who understands God's grace given to spiritual beggars. He has a number of contrasts uh, between those two types of persons. I'd like to read a number of those for you. He says, the religious person says this, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the person who understands grace says, I'm accepted, Therefore, I obey. He says that the motivation for the religious person is based on fear and insecurity. For the one who understands God's grace given to the spiritually impoverished, the motivation is based on grateful joy. The religious person obeys God in order to get things from God. The one immersed in God's grace obeys God, hear this, to get God, to delight in and resemble Him. For the religious person, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who does good deserves a comfortable life. But to the person who understands that we're undeserving recipients of God's grace, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, yes, but I know that all my punishment fell on Jesus and that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. When the religious person is criticized, he or she is furious or devastated because it's crucial that they think of themselves as a good person and threats to that self-image have to be destroyed at all costs. And as I go through these, I hope you're thinking about where you fit in. 
But to the gracious, the person who has received God's grace and knows it, when they are criticized, yes, they struggle. But it's not essential for that person to think of his or herself as a good person. Their identity is not built on their record or their performance, but on God's love for them in Christ. Think about how it applies to prayer life. For the religious person who goes through the motions and the the disciplines, the prayer life consists largely of petition, and it only heats up when in times of need. The main purpose in prayer is control of the circumstances, the environment. But the person who has an intimate relationship with God because his grace has been bestowed upon them, their prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration, and the main purpose in prayer is fellowship with God. For the religious person, their self-image swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I am prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. And if and when I'm not living up to my standards, I feel humble but not confident. I feel like a failure. For the person who understands God's grace, my self-view is not based on my moral achievement. In Christ, I am sinful yet accepted in him. I am so bad that he had to die for me, and I'm so loved that he was willing to do that. And this leads me to deep humility and confidence at the same time. One more. The religious person sees his or her identity and self-worth based mainly on how hard they work and how moral they are. And so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. But for the person who understands God's grace... My identity and self-worth are not centered on, are, are centered on the one who died for me. I'm saved by sheer grace, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace am I what I am. What a contrast between how we see ourselves and how it affects us. The present security that we have in the grace of God should affect now the way we live. I have a list that I sometimes use in counseling folks. It's a list of 50 fruits of pride. 50. Uh, I'm not going to go through all 50, but I'll give you about 10 of them. 50 fruits of pride. One of them is I want to be well-known or important. That is, I'm selfishly ambitious. I really want to get ahead and make a name for myself. I want to be someone important in life. I like having a position or title. I far prefer leading to following. Or I'm sinfully competitive. That's the second one. That is, I'm overly competitive. I always want to win or come out on top, and it bothers me when I don't. Or third is, I want to impress people. I want people to be impressed with me. I'd like to make my accomplishments known. And then the author of this document lists a number of ways that we try to make ourselves known. By the clothes or jewelry we wear, by the vehicle we drive, the furniture we own, the house we live in, the place we live, the company we work for, the amount of money we earn, how spiritual we are, what we look like, our physical appearance, What we've accomplished, what we know, where we went to school, who you know, what your background is, and on it goes. Oh, dear friends, may the Spirit of God penetrate our hearts. 
and cause us to see where we do not behave as, behave as the spiritually impoverished people that Jesus says we are. A fourth way that pride shows its fruit is in a desire to draw attention to myself. I like to be the center of attention. And I'll say or do things to draw attention to myself. A fifth is I like to talk about myself. I like to talk especially about myself or persons or things I'm involved with. I want people to know what I'm doing or thinking. I'd rather speak than listen. I have a hard time being succinct. I can go on and on about myself. A sixth is a tendency toward deceit and pretension. It's a fruit of pride. Why? I tend to be deceptive about myself. I find myself lying. Why? To preserve my reputation. I find myself hiding the truth about myself, especially about sins and weaknesses. I don't want people to know who I really am. Where there's a desire for recognition and praise, I desire to receive recognition and credit for what I do. I like people to see what I do and let me know that they noticed. And I feel hurt or offended when they don't. I'm overly concerned about my reputation, hate being misunderstood. Just three more, quickly. My pride, because it's centered on me, means I'm not fulfilled in serving others. I'm not very excited about seeing or making others successful. I tend to feel envious, in fact, jealous or critical towards those who are doing well or being honored. A ninth is, I see myself as self-sufficient. I tend to be self-sufficient in the way I live my life. I don't live with a constant awareness of my every breath being dependent upon the will of God. I tend to think I have enough strength and ability and wisdom to live and manage my life. My practice of the spiritual disciplines is inconsistent and superficial when it is practiced. I don't like to ask others for help. And lastly, of these ten, one fruit of pride is that I'm regularly anxious, regularly worrying. Why is that? I'm often anxious about my life in the future because I tend not to trust God and rarely experience his abiding and transcendent peace in my soul. I have a hard time sleeping at night because of fearful thoughts and burdens that I carry and pridefully am unwilling to cast upon him. Well, friends, I quoted toward the beginning of our sermon that great theologian Sheryl Crow. She said, if it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. And then she goes on to ask, if it makes you happy, then why are you so sad? And do you see what's happening in our world? People are pursuing happiness in all the wrong places and in all the wrong ways. And in this most famous and most profound of sermons, at the very beginning, Jesus sets on its head on its head all of the thinking of the world and our culture. That the way to happiness is completely different than what the culture pursues, and I'm afraid what many who have imbibed the culture in the church are pursuing. I encourage you to be with us these next several weeks as we look at Jesus explaining to us what the truly blessed life, what the truly good life, what the truly happy life looks like. And we have this take-home truth for you in your outline. Here's what Christians are. Christians are the spiritually poor who have been made by Christ spiritually rich. And that should affect how we live. Now, before we close with 
our uh, concluding song. <clears throat> I want to give invitation to those who may have come into this room without having received Christ as Savior, come to him with the empty hands of faith, spiritually impoverished, but coming to him for the riches that he provides by his perfect life and substitutionary death on the cross. I don't know everyone in this room. I don't know the heart of everyone in this room. I don't know the relationship with God of everyone in this room. I can tell you this. Dear friend, if you have come to God with anything except the empty hands of a spiritual beggar, then you do not have a relationship with him. It begins by recognizing your own spiritual bankruptcy and that in Christ you find everything that you were to be. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. And he invites you to receive the riches that he offers to you with those empty hands of faith. Now, how does that happen? You are to realize that you're a sinner and recognize that Christ died. God, the Son, God came as man to pay the penalty for your sin, repents. I give you my life, Lord. I'm going to follow your way, not my way. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to pray in just a moment. And when we do, you can say from your heart to God in your own words something to that effect. Oh, Lord, I am a spiritual beggar. I'm a sinner. I have nothing to offer you, but I believe Jesus has everything to give me. I ask for the forgiveness that only he can give, and I give you my life. I want to follow you. You do that, and in that instant, he rescues you, he saves you, he delivers you from your sin and, hear this, from yourself and your own pride. And yes, it affects the way you live. Let's bow together. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here. Thank you for allowing us to look at these words, these blessed words of the Lord Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Thank you, Father, that in your grace you have given this to us. And only in your grace do we have it. It comes freely at no cost to us, but at infinite cost to you, the death of God the Son on the cross. I pray, Father, that right now your spirit is moving on the hearts of some who came into this room having never established a relationship with you based upon their own spiritual poverty and the riches of Christ. Oh, now may they be calling upon the Lord to be saved. And we believe your promise that he or she who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I pray that the hearts of Christians, your followers, have been convicted, as mine has. As I think about my own spiritual pride, as I think about my desire to be recognized, and the hurt that I feel when I'm not, and all of the fruits that follow from forgetting the, the beggarly condition that I am actually in. Oh, Lord, thank you for renewing that truth to us. May it make a difference to us in this coming week as we serve you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.